0: Hello and welcome to The Great Indoors,
1: the podcast which reveals everything you ever needed to know about your interiors and explains how to make it all really work for you in your home. I'm Sophie Robinson. And I'm Kate Watson-Smythe. And today we are in my house, which is (laughs) very exciting and means I don't have to wear a duvet on my head. Oh, I love the fact that in the script
0: it says jolly. You wouldn't say that word, would you? (laughs) so good! Exciting, Kate. Well, I'm going to say it's jolly. I am jollied out to be in your house. It is so (laughs) nice to be here. Sorry, I'm (laughs) (laughs) pretty That just made me laugh. (laughs) Jolly. (laughs) There's been no jolliness around here. Thank you very much. I don't do jolly. (laughs) Okay, so listen. what (laughs) What I really wanted to say. What I really wanted to say is here we are somewhat giggling at the end of another series and hasn't it just flown by I mean the number of listeners who tune into this quite frankly hilarious podcast has really peaked recently and this can only be because more and more people are discovering the thrill of designing a home and making it one you love and it goes without saying that we are both
1: honoured to be spearheading the nation's newfound love affair with interiors Our sponsor, Harlequin, are also at the forefront of the interior design revolution and soon are
0: launching a new online tool to help you crack your personal colour code. They are calling it Own the Room, and it comprises of a series of detailed questions tailored to discover your interior design personality, which will ultimately lead you to one of four distinct looks. Discovering the one which will be perfect for you is all part of the fun, because Harlequin know that making your home your own is the heart of great interior design. And actually, I
1: love the way you end up with not just a look, but a bespoke colour palette that's based around your answers. You can use this palette then to work up colour schemes for any room in your house.
0: And for me, the bit I really love is the Harlequin Colour Code, which also teaches you about some of the psychology and meaning behind the colours that have been selected for you too. So ultimately, your colour schemes don't just look good, but feel perfect too. Come on then, come on. Question one, holiday destinations.
1: Are you... Bustling streets and city lights, local markets and culture, spa time or lakeside retreats?
0: Oh, um, oh, (laughs) you can't make me choose. I've not been on holiday for months. I want to go to all those places. Can I just have all of them? Uh, What about this question? So is your wardrobe sleek, statement, monochrome, boho, Delicate or bold?
1: Well, currently it's a bit of a mess. I've not had
0: time to tidy up and I've barely got dressed for a year, but they
1: are good questions. (laughs) If you want to take the quiz, keep your eyes peeled on Harlequin's Instagram or head over to the Harlequin website on July the 1st when the Own the Room tool launches. And we'll also put a link in the show notes for you too. I'm going to do
0: it as soon as it launches, but for now we have to get on with the show. Now, today, for your listening pleasure, we have a fascinating interview with Stephen Westland, who is, yeah, this, a professor of colour science and technology. He'll be revealing the surprising science behind our relationship with colour. Plus, I've unearthed this brilliant video on YouTube, which tells you 10 things every stylish person has in their home. So we'll finally be able to find out once and for all listeners whether Kate is indeed a stylish person because I'm here in her house and I'm going to see if she's got the evidence and I should point out that
1: I have not seen this video (laughs) I'm a bit nervous (laughs) but first before we come to my ultimate proof of total stylishness or complete humiliation shall we begin with Holston? For those of you who don't know, this is the smash hit Netflix series inspired by the life of 1970s designer Roy Holston, who's played by Ewan McGregor. It's stylish. It's very saucy. But of course, here at The Great Indoors, we are just as interested in the furniture
0: as the frocks and... Well, the frolicking. And I love the fact that even halfway through, I was jumping on a call to you going, are you watching this? The interiors are amazing.
1: (laughs) I mean, it's everything come together. We've been talking for a while, haven't we? On here, on blogs, on magazines, about the return of the 70s. And obviously this show is set in the 70s, kicking through into the early 80s. So it's all those design features we've been talking about writ large against the backdrop of fashion. So there's sort of hippie caftans and then going through the 70s. It's just, it's so visually stunning.
0: Yeah, like a lot of these incredible Netflix series, it's filmic, isn't it? And yeah. I think for me as well, the attention to detail, of course, because it's about a fashion designer. But I think what was so amazing and inspiration about Holston and maybe why he was so incredibly pivotal at the time, is it was lifestyle. You know, it was everything. It wasn't just about the dresses. It was the people he hung out with. It was about Studio 54. Like you say, it was. It just really captured a moment in time of high glamour, fast living, and utter fabulousness.
1: Well, they start at the beginning where he moves into his first studio, which is probably more my kind of look there, which I think Vogue or someone has called oat DIY. I am here for that. I am here for oat DIY. Oat what?
0: DIY? Well, it's
1: haute couture is high fashion. Oh, isn't I was no not so
0: porridge oats. Not, no. no,
1: it's an H. H A U T. Haute. Haute. DIY. Um, which is where he had his first fashion show. And there were brick walls and they wanted to sort of dress it a bit. So they rushed off and he didn't have any money. So they bought a whole load of kind of tie-dye material and tented the walls with it. Mm. And then he showed all these kaftans. So it was a sort of tented hippie look. Um, you and know, he that, was really
0: directional, wasn't he, in that whole yeah. kind of particular style? It was something new. It was moving away from quite a prim, geometric, stiff 60s vibe which, you know, that you think of the Mary Quant monochrome into this very louche 70s, well, and showing he, his snaky
1: hips. He had, this is not giving away a plot line, a sort of matter of background. I didn't realise this until I started watching it. He started out as a milliner and he made the very famous pillbox hat that Jackie Kennedy wore to the presidential inauguration. And then, of course, so that was in the late 50s. I'm struggling on my timeline here. You're into Early You're 60s. 60s. And then women stopped wearing hats. So, you know, he had to reinvent himself. And I take that as a great sort of inspirational thing as well. You know, sometimes your career is going in one direction and for whatever reason it changes. He reinvented himself, moved from hats to clothes and off he went. And he was very controlling.
0: Well, he had a vision. He was a visionary, but he obviously had this flair and... I think sensuality, what I really got from watching the show was he was really tuned in to feminine sensuality. And you know, obviously as a fashion designer and a gay man, he, you know, it was all about the the ultra-suede. He wanted women to not just look fabulous but feel fabulous. So the feel of the fabric was just as important as the cut and the look. And then I think that's also then played out his interiors. I mean, I absolutely adore the fact that, you know, we've got this kind of sleek minimalism going on by the time it's the late 70s, early 80s. And so quite uncluttered interiors, very high impact, but then these like huge oversized orchids. And there's this great quote from the film, where his accountant is pulling him up on the amount of money he spends a year on orchids. And he says, orchids are part of my process and you can't put a price on inspiration. (laughs) I just thought, I thought, I'm going to use that. For me, it's not orchids, but I can can work out something else to justify why I need to spend spend my budget on my interiors. I was looking up that mid-century
1: townhouse, which apparently, wouldn't you know it, has now been bought by Tom Ford the designer who's restoring it. back in 2019. And apparently in this flat, he used to serve his guests, including, of course, his best friend, Liza Minnelli, caviar, baked potatoes and cocaine. (laughs) (laughs) Um, What I thought was interesting about that townhouse, though, and you mentioned it, and I was surprised you'd mentioned it because it was very grey and minimal and he had sort of grey jersey flannel sofas and he had this grey industrial carpet in this sunken living room. And I was looking at that, and apparently his theory behind that was if you have a very sort of plain grey background, it makes the people in the room stand out and look amazing. And obviously I've written a lot about grey, I've used grey a lot, and I've always said that grey is a great backdrop to works of art, you know, pictures on the wall makes books stand out. And that, for me, has always been a fairly obvious way to use grey as a colour, but I would never
0: have thought of using it as a background for people. And fabulous people in yeah. fabulous Holston outfits. Really interesting. I mean, you do have to have fabulous guests. I don't know, it doesn't work for everybody. I mean, he got Andy Warhol, Bianca Jagger and Liza Merley hanging around at his house. Those, they probably did true. decorate the space. Somewhat <laughs> more. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Somewhat
1: more than Auntie Maud might, yes. <laughs> and obviously Enid the Cat would completely disappear. But so that's the kind of minimalist town look. But he also had, which I think a lot of us will be more drawn to, this fabulous beach hut which I think is more it's not rustic is it because it's not rustic in the sense that we would term rustic but but it it, had kind of white canvas sofas and also really interesting it was more tonal it was calmer it suited its surroundings more relaxed by the sea but the thing I noticed was that all the books
0: were reversed I did notice that and I thought hang on a minute and apparently he was quite directional in that that was his that was his his idea so So there we are yes all these Instagrammers
1: oh, who didn't know what they were doing necessarily but turns out they'd been influenced by Holston who found it quite stressful to have all the different colours of the spines facing out so he reversed them so now we've all got permission to reverse our books I've always been a bit sniffy about it now I think we've got a permission because it's Holston
0: I was going to say I'm amazed that you're not apoplectic I'm does that make me one of your insanely you stylish people so insanely swayed if someone's fabulous and cool you're like okay I'll do that then <laughs> I mean, seriously, Kate, Uh, uh, you have been banging on about what a design crime it is. Totally, but now I think it's got design heritage. (laughs) So contrary. The uh, the interior for me that completely blew my socks off, I was going to say blew my skirt up, Maybe it did. I mean, I really loved it, was the Olympic Tower office. You know, when he's really made it. Yeah. And it's that panoramic floor to ceiling glass view of Manhattan. And it's red carpet and red furniture and red lacquer gloss walls. And then obviously the enormous potted orchids. I just thought was absolutely insanely fabulous and very, very visionary. Do you know how big that office was? Was it massive?
1: Twelve thousand square
0: feet. (laughs) Ooh, I mean that's that's insanely large. What I loved was that impact of that colour red, which just felt totally opulent totally luxurious, really, really visionary because it was all about the colour. There wasn't any pattern, there wasn't I mean I just didn't really notice anything else in the room, like the red sofa matched the red wall which matched the red carpet this really red monochromatic wraparound saturated lusty colour. It was so sexy and so exciting and that's looking at it in 2021. Can you imagine what that would have felt like in the late 70s? What I thought was interesting as well
1: is in in the beginning of the show when he's in his sort of white white exposed brick wall first studio that he wears a lot of white and by the time he's moved through into the red studio he's got a red coat on
0: i'm wondering whether this 70s sleek minimalism but with this real saturated color we're going to see that influencing interiors it certainly influenced you i've have had a bit of a
1: holston moment But (laughs) I've been able to experiment because it's in the loft, which is the mad husband's office. So it's got an exposed brick wall, I suppose, which was painted. And we've had the look up there has been all sort of off white. Bit Holston's first studio, actually, (gasps) off white exposed brick walls. And we just came over a bit. (gasps) Oh, let's go. And we were going to do it orange and then that didn't quite work. So we've gone for this kind of soft Pinky tomatoy red. Well, it's, you've
0: gone for brick. It's a Ferrand Ball color, isn't it? And it's, it's got a bit of it's got a bit of. Brown?
1: It's called Blazer. Oh yes, that's which right. was I have to say, not a color I was aware of on the Ferrand Ball. It's the challenge. color of my bath, isn't it? At home in the bathroom,
0: and that's really funny because I would have said it looked so much redder in your house than in my loft. It does look redder in my house, yeah. and it must be to do with the light and the space and everything else like that. Yeah, it's awesome. I love it. I mean, I love your home. It's so beautiful, but your color palette is quite subdued. And sophisticated... Oh, thank. I'll take that. You know what I mean? All these chalk. I'm sitting here now in your library, and it's chocolates, and it's soft pinks, and it's these worn Persian reds. And then you go into the loft conversion, and you've got these sort of lo- and it feels quite New York loft actually. You've got black painted windows and um, white painted floor, and there's the brick of the chimney breast, etc. There's beams. I'm loving the a bit of totally unexpected of UK. I was not. I think I'm still it. a
1: bit scared of it, but I think I like it. But actually, what I sort of wanted if there was a process behind it was that that it is a sort of extension of the colours in the rest of the house, but just more. So there Mm. is, yes, there's pink down here, there's burgundy, there is, you know, Persian rugs Mm. are quite red. So it's actually just like taking those colours which are in a more muted
0: tone throughout the house and then getting up to the top and going bang. Yeah
1: culmination of the colour palette right up there.
0: Yeah, it looks awesome. And then you've got your new Jonathan Adler yellow pop neon light on there, which is kind of like it's quite Holston-esque. Exactly. It's going 70s vibe up there. I'm here for it. I think it's really interesting because, okay, here's my confession. So everybody who knows my house, it's maximalist country chintz maximum attack, isn't it? I'm finding, I don't know whether I can in my home but I'm craving a bit of a low slung 70s sofa I'm craving a bit of shag pile I'm really digging it and I think it's this is going to be interesting to see if this takes on as an interior trend because everyone's talking about lockdown coming out and us going back to like the roaring 20s and all being a bit but I think it might be the roaring 70s 70s. (laughs) that's what I'm more into and I'm wondering whether my feeling of like yeah I want some party vibe Holston-esque opulence two like I want to wear
1: you want to wear a caftan
0: no no I like the halter neck it was all there I had a Holston top actually not a vintage one because I think the, the
1: studio carries on I had a very nice khaki green Holston top silk I loved it and then oh, it see, came to an gold, unfortunate want... end
0: when I had a fight with us, some salad dressing <laughs> um and that was the end of that oh I'm more into like the gold lame of course halter neck doing my spins on my mirrored dance floor aka studio 54 that's what I'm after. So you're going to
1: chuck out your chintz and go low-slung, low-slung, love baby. Am I going to chuck
0: out my... I'm just craving it. I just feel like, yeah, I'd love to... I, I don't think it's going to work in my house. Who knows, the extension coming in the autumn. Maybe we'll it's find room for dance floor. You, you make that point, though, about everybody talking
1: about the 20s, because obviously the roaring 20s were 100 years ago. That style, to me, is quite formal and luxurious and hard edges. You know, that Art Deco, it was celebrating the sort of machine age, wasn't it? So mm. it's not a soft and relaxing look. And we might have thought pre-pandemic that we were heading into a reworking of that look. Whereas actually, as you say, maybe the pandemic means we've come out of that and we've we've gone forward to the more relaxed look of the 70s. So we want textures and corduroy and leather d- and low I, sofas. I'm not
0: talking about, I just want a party. Oh, okay. <laughs> So, do come and chat to us about TV inspired interiors from Mad Men bar carts to Breaking Bad Meth Labs. Or, or perhaps not. <laughs> We'd love to hear your stories, and you can find us on Instagram, where I'm Sophie Robinson Interiors and she's mad about the house. Not forgetting the Great
1: Indoors Podcast Facebook group and a special mention this week to listener and Facebook group member Ruby Debs Oakley, who has been renovating a 1910 weatherboard villa in Christchurch in New Zealand. And she recently posted, the house was 97% finished, the wallpaper was hung last week, today tragedy struck and the tumble dryer caught fire and my house is pretty much gone.
0: Oh, poor Ruby. Maybe facing a complete rebuild. It's really pretty grim. And all of us here at the podcast are sending all our love, all our sympathy and strength, Ruby, and really hope you end up with something, well, even more beautiful than before. Echoing that completely. To take your
1: mind off it all, and perhaps to inspire your next steps, have a listen to our interview with Professor Stephen Westland of Leeds University, who has written a white paper on colour for our sponsor, Harlequin. His particular areas of expertise include colour science, machine learning, colour imaging, colour design, lighting, health and well-being. Now, I only actually know what about half of those really are, but essentially, Stephen seems to be interested in everything colour. Listen on to find out if you are a high screener or a low screener. And no, that is nothing to do with how much time you spend scrolling Instagram.
0: So welcome, Stephen Westland. And my first question has to be, what does a professor of colour do in a typical day? Can you give us an insight into what you're you're getting up to up there in Leeds?
2: Yeah, so that's a really good question. And people think it's a really niche topic, a professor of colour science. But in fact, if you look around your room now, wherever you are, everything is coloured. I can see books in in the particular I'm looking at, but walls, carpets, cosmetics, hair, skin, teeth, and of course our screens that we look at as well every day. And it turns out that all the people who make those things are really concerned about how to make them the right colour and what the colours mean. So in fact, most companies who make anything actually employ some sort of colour scientist somewhere in the company. And one of the things I do like about my job is that Every day I could be approached by someone to talk about the colour of Weetabix or teeth or skin or cosmetics. I literally never know what's coming next.
0: Well, I think it's absolutely fascinating for us as interior design nerds and all our our listeners. You know, colour plays such a big part of our interior design and our home environments. But I'm wondering what it was like for you to work with a brand who makes wallpaper and furnishings and fabrics but wanted you to find out for them how they can service their customers, I suppose, on a deeper, more emotional level. What's interesting about this white paper is it's digging a little bit deeper beyond the surface look of colour, isn't it?
2: Yeah, so that was an example of where someone comes along, you're not expecting it, and and it's something different and new. And it was a great fit because one of the things I'm really trying to do in my research is to try to find out what's true and what isn't true about all the crazy things you hear on the internet about whether this colour does that or this colour makes time pass more slowly or this colour makes your heartbeat faster. <laughs> you can read all sorts of stuff. The problem is some of those things are not true, but some of them incredibly are true.
1: Can you give us a couple of examples of colour myths you've busted? I mean, I hadn't even heard of the notion that people think certain colours make time pass faster or more slowly.
2: They also say yellow makes babies cry more. There's there's all sorts of these things, and and people state them as facts. So one of the interesting ones is whether red makes the heart beat faster. So you can go on the internet and look for this, and you'll find it as fact. And in fact, when I tried to study it a few years ago, I actually had... Another academic saying to me, Why are you doing that? Everybody knows that's true. But if you look at it, there's a PhD thesis in 1950 in California, which I can't get hold of, which seems to have some evidence. Now I've actually done a lot of research on this, and there is a little bit of evidence that it might make your heartbeat faster. But it's not going to go from sort of 60 beats per minute to 70. It might go from 60 to 60.3. You'd hardly notice it. And it's really not clear whether it's does or not. But that's an example of something which people take for granted, as if it's a total fact.
1: Well, and there's that other one, isn't there, about red, where it's very often used in dining rooms and it's supposed to be the colour of appetite. And I looked into this once. I think you'll find that's orange. Well, it it turned out to be orange, (laughs) but what people were saying was that red is associated with dining rooms and appetite and and Chinese restaurants are red. And that's why they paint them red, because they want you to eat more. Whereas actually... Uh, if you follow it through a bit further, for the Chinese, red is associated with luck and money. So they're actually painting their restaurants red because you go in there and you're going to spend lots of money and orange is the colour of appetite. So there's you can sort of bend it to whatever you want, perhaps.
2: Yes, I agree. And th- there have been quite a few studies actually about people giving people peanuts on different coloured plates and trying to work out which ones people eat more peanuts from. But the results are often quite inconclusive. Because the effects of colour are so complicated and have multiple mechanisms, you can get slightly different results by just changing the condition slightly.
0: I'm really interested to know more about this, because this is kind of quite a core part of the white paper, is the two sort of main arguments, and this is used a lot in interior design, that cool colours, especially blue, are calming and restful. And the warm spectrum, your oranges, yellows and reds, are uplifting, invigorating, they make you more alert, more excitable. And your research has sort of not always dispelled them as myths, but said it's a lot more complex than that. And it's not just about the colour, it's also about the quality of the light.
2: It's generally accepted that if you have a red environment, it's sort of stimulating and blue is calming. It's true. But you can also read research that says that if we look at too much blue light, for example, late at night, which happens when we use our smartphones, for example, it actually stops us going to sleep. It has an alerting property. We may think we're sleeping well, but in fact, it can disrupt our our sort of deep sleep. So therefore, you've got a real conundrum because on the one hand, you've got people saying that blue is calming. And on the other hand, you've got people saying that blue is the opposite. It's actually stimulating. And how do you reconcile those two different findings? My argument is to understand that there are multiple, what I call, mechanisms One of the mechanisms you might refer to as more of a psychological or emotional aspect. So the idea that blue is calming might be associated with the fact that people, when they think of blue, they think of blue skies and blue seas. Whereas with red, they think of maybe something hot and fiery, maybe even angry. But there's another way in which color can affect us. And I want to get slightly technical here, which is to say that We all know that our eyes respond to light, which is how we see. And when we see color, they send signals to the back of the brain. That's where our vision takes place. But actually, those senses in the eye, they also send signals to a different part of the brain, which is right in the middle. And that part of the brain does things like regulating our temperature, maybe even regulating our sleep patterns, controlling the secretion of hormones. So, for example, when you wake up, your body starts secreting cortisol. And then later in the day, it stops producing that. Now, all of that process to do with your well-being is controlled to some extent by the patterns of light that we have. And those cells in the eye send their signals to the middle of the brain and are doing something quite different to those sort of emotional or psychological mechanisms. In the white paper, I think I refer to them as physiological effects, So the blue light effectively there is stimulating you. So then you've got these two almost contradictory effects of color. And which one occurs? Well, they could occur at the same time in principle. But, you know, if you're in a a room, for example, and your walls are painted blue, a bedroom, almost certainly the main dominant effect there is going to be the emotional, psychological one. So is blue a good color for bedrooms? Absolutely, it is. If you're looking at a really bright sort of blue light on the screen or looking at your computer screen, which emits quite a lot of blue light, because of its intensity, that's probably sufficient to activate this other mechanism. That's the main thing in my paper is about those two processes, isn't it?
0: So I'm already trying to think, you know, as an interior designer here, I'm already trying to think of a solution. Would it be that you could create a room with soft colour? And I think in the white paper, you talk about paint having a much more subtle effect on us than light. It's a much more, has a more intense effect on us than an ambient paint colour in the background. So I'm thinking maybe if your preference is for a blue bedroom, uh, maybe then you have one of these lovely sleepy honey-coloured bedside lights that emit an orangey, warm, amber glow. So you've got the cool bedroom that's calming. It's reminding you of the sky and the sea. And then you've got your warm light, which is going to be help you. And that would be beautiful
2: in terms of also the aesthetics because you'd have the blue and the orange together, which is a lovely harmony, isn't it? So that would be... I think that sounds like a great design.
1: You said in your white paper that one study explored the effect of three rooms, one with warm coloured walls and furniture, one with cool coloured walls and furniture and one with achromatic walls and furniture to see how people reacted to the different atmosphere. So I think that's what Sophie's sort of talking about there, doing the walls in one colour and using the lighting to play with the warm effect. Because it says that when it's a sort of white light, which I'm assuming is a cool light, people worked better in short-term memory and problem-solving tasks.
2: I mean, if you think about how we've evolved, we've evolved to have loads of light in the day. And before we all worked indoors, we all worked outside. We had loads of light in the day. And then in, in the night, we had very little light. And if we had light at all, it was candles or firelight. And that's very reddish. So what's good for our bodies is to have loads of light in the morning, loads of blue light, that's what wakes us up. And as the day goes on, you should be getting less and less intense light and warmer light. So having sort of warm lights in your house in the evening is a really good idea.
0: I love the fact that light has a colour quality to it because I don't think that's thought thought about about. enough. One other thing in your white paper, which I thought was really interesting, is a
1: body of work for the last 30 years has been looking at people who are characterised as high screeners and low screeners. And when I read that, I thought, oh, well, I'm obviously a high screener. I spend all my day on my phone. But it's not that, is it?
2: No, so I've had a PhD student who's been looking at this topic who's just finished her PhD. So this is one of the reasons why, when I said colour effects are complex and there are these two mechanisms, there are also different types of people. Some people are much more sensitive to their environment. And those people... Low screeners and the people who are, are less sensitive—they're high screeners, so they can screen out their environment. They remain relatively unaffected. I think I must be um, a high screener because my desk at work, when I do go there, is horrifically messy.
0: I can't if it's if the colour's not right. I can't. I can't do it. Yeah, so
2: that would make you a low screener.
0: I think my husband must be a high screener because he puts up with a lot in my house, doesn't he? It's a
2: generalisation, but designers tend to be low screeners. Designers tend to be quite sensitive to their environment, actually, and seem to particularly want to control it. And other people let it go.
0: That's fascinating. But moving back to the decoration, I'm back to my paint colours. What was that other bit, Kate? Something about the chromatic room being the least popular. This is a bit I jumped on, Stephen, because I'm a real colour lover. And one thing that was jumping out for me was the chromatic rooms or indeed white or neutral rooms were not having a positive Effect on people. Color can enhance
1: performance, and color can affect creativity. Whereas white walls were found to be
0: boring and uninteresting. And I I I didn't pay you to say that, Stephen. Just for the record.
2: (laughs) No, not at all. In fact, I've been saying this for a decade. Actually, you know, I mean, years ago there was a big push in hospitals to put artwork in hospitals because if you looked at lots of our sort of office buildings and things like hospitals, they have just really bland environments. And I don't think that's healthy for us. And I, I think colour isn't just fun and fantastic. It's also important. And it's important for our well-being and health.
0: Can you give us a little bit more fact, if you like, on how you've how have you come to that conclusion?
2: We do have a, a special room at Leeds, actually, where we can change the colour of the lighting. Not just sort of red, green, blue, but literally wavelength by wavelength. And we do things like we measure think we measure heart rate, we measure people's emotional well-being, psychological well-being, we measure their brain responses in order to come to these conclusions. I'll give you one project we're working on to look at colour in a really inhospitable environment. Not a home, but maybe, let's say, a spaceship. Imagine you're going to put someone in a spaceship and they're going to stay in that spaceship a year. What can you do with colour to make it more bearable for them? And People might say, well, you should make it blue, or you should make it red, or you should make it green. But my argument is the biggest thing you could do is give people a choice. And especially if they can change it, actually, during their voyage. Because a lot of people like blue, for example. Many, many studies of color preference have been done over the last 100 years. And by far, people's most favorite color is blue. But I hate blue. I love pink and yellow and red. But I'm slightly anomalous. Most people like blue. So my argument is it's not about saying this color does this or this color does that. But people should buy the colors that they themselves like, that give happy memories to them. Because we like the colors that remind us of things that we like. But there could be people, because of their previous life experience or how they're brought up, their associations are slightly different.
1: I'm with you on blue, actually. There's no blue in my house. And while you were talking about the sea and the sky, I was sort of thinking, oh, why don't I like blue? And you know what? I'm a really bad swimmer. (laughs) And I hate putting my face under the shower. I really don't like water. And the other point I just wanted to make, you say you're doing this research, let's take an environment like a spaceship and put someone in it for a year and look at the decor. Well, we've all just been in our houses for a year. (laughs) We've been in our own spaceships. We've all been in our (laughs) own spaceships. And I think that's where this interest in colour and how we react to it is now reaching out to the wider population because we're all more aware. And I'm interested in a line in your white paper which says that people at transitional or stressful times of their life may wish to temporarily create extreme environments. And regular listeners to the podcast will know that all through the lockdown, I kept talking to Sophie about how I wanted to paint my kitchen yellow. I hate yellow. I hate yellow almost as much as I hate blue. But where was this yellow coming from? And as soon as the lockdown ended, I was like, yellow? What yellow? I don't want yellow. Maybe
2: it was because you wanted to exercise control. Over this environment. I think that's a plausible reason for why you might want to do that. And I I don't have the facts for this, actually, but I do work with quite a few paint companies. And my understanding is is that paint companies are one of the sectors that have done quite well during COVID because sales of paint have been quite buoyant.
0: And the other feedback we've had from paint companies is that bright colours, brighter, bolder colours have been way more popular in the last year one of the things we've learned from this experience would be that colour is joy. And maybe people have really understood that because, you know, grey has been a really fashionable interior design colour for, it's it's had a hold, hasn't it, for the last decade. And now they're saying that it's, you know, these warmer neutrals are coming in. But actually, I think what the paint companies have discovered is actually people want to be more experimental and, and actually singing from your hymn sheet, I think a bit, Steve, and I think people have thought, well, no one's coming around my house. It's just me in here. I'm just going to play around with colour and do what I like.
2: No, that's a very good point, actually, because I think in the right paper, I made the point that some people don't want to paint their rooms in really bright colours because they're worried about the resale and all of this sort of stuff because they might paint it a colour people don't like. But there's also the notion, which you've just touched upon, that people might be judged So if you have an extreme use of color in your room, other people may look at it and say, well, I wouldn't have done that. So people tend to be very conservative, don't they? But maybe in lockdown, they've basically gone crazy because no one's coming around anyway. They can do what they want. What I hope is that once lockdown is finished, people carry on using color in this way and realize that it's okay to paint your room all these crazy colors. You know, it's fun to do it because frankly, if you ask the child what color they should be painted, they would paint it bright yellows and pinks. And we've lost that. As you get older, you lose that. Maybe we want to be sophisticated and that should be black or white or grey. But I would say it's much more important to have fun.
1: On that notion of fun, Professor, I don't want to give all your secrets away, but there you are sitting on a red chair uh, by some very white walls. Just talk us through that after all your experimental having fun.
2: (laughs) Yeah, it's a really good point. I will reveal that I'm actually married and my my wife, despite the fact I repeatedly tell her that I'm a professor of color science and I actually work in a school of design and I teach color design. It turns out in this house, my opinions are worth very little. (laughs) Um, Actually, it's a a color called Elephant's Breath. You've probably heard of it. Yes, we have. (laughs) It's quite a famous paint color, which I really don't like very much. But you can't see it. In fact, I'll just turned my thing around slightly so you can see it. I know listeners can't see it, but you can see that I do have one wall, which is bright red. Oh. What you might not notice is on the wall, there's a picture. And in that picture, it's a picture of Old Trafford, Manchester United. So I'm a massive Manchester United fan. I love red. The two things are connected again. And so I'm, I'm allowed to have my one... Red wall.
0: Yeah, so it's in your it's in your site, isn't it? You've got your happy colour. Exactly. I think that's a really nice tip because one question I wanted to ask you was with all this insight into the fact that we need to find our own happy colours. We can't just be prescribed the latest trends and tastes and you must do this and graze in and graze out, etc. Cetera, etc. Cetera. If we're ignoring all of that and we've got to work out are we blue, are we pink, are we warm, are we cool? And then there's all the different tones of colours as well, of course. There's a lot of work for people to do. What you're kind of do it, saying is, for you, you know, it's your favourite football team. Red, red's your happy colour. Like, just, you can find your colour joy and inspiration, perhaps in some of the least obvious ways. Yeah,
2: definitely. And, and, and you know, you don't have to paint the whole room that colour I
0: think you will find to do I think you're fine well, to well, do well <laughs> the issue of the
1: feature wall is a whole different okay. episode we'll bring you back another time thank you so much no worries
0: Just loved that chat. So a huge thanks to Stephen Westland and do have a read of his white paper over on the Harlequin website, which is harlequin.sandersondesigngroup.com. So to end the series, I thought we'd have a little bit of fun. I found this, what I what I think is quite a brilliant video on YouTube from houseofvalentina.com. Uh, this particular video has had 90,000 views and it is titled... Home items stylish people always have in their home. And I cannot (laughs) wait to get your views. Okay, so (laughs) I'm slightly under pressure now. (laughs) Should we just crack on and rattle through it? Go on then. Okay, so the lovely Valentina and Jack, who are, well, they're a couple, they live in America. I mean, that's the other thing I think we should flag up. I think there might be some cultural differences here that we could explore. Right. But buckle up, Kate (laughs) Watson-Smile, because I'm here in your home and I'm going to find out quite how stylish you really are. Oh, God. So number one. Yes. Is, in inverted commas, cute soap pumps. Every stylish people's home has a cute soap pump. Well, I've failed. So you have to... If you're buying liquid soap in a pre-bought, you know, shop-bought bottle... Yes. ...you can't leave it in there. You need to decant it into a stylish soap pump. Where (laughs) shall I start? First of all, I'm going to start with the fact that I'm now all over the soap bar, so
1: it's all about the stylish soap dish. Obviously, I've got masses of them. But secondly, if I was buying soap in a pump then I gotta say I'd probably buy it for the container therefore I wouldn't need to decant oh, it see
0: you're one step ahead oh yeah one, yeah, one step, step ahead, ahead. Right. does that <laughs> make me insanely stylish well, that's one for me or one, one for Valentina I'd say that's one to Kate WS okay yeah okay next one beautiful baskets and she recommends we buy a basket and stuff it with our stuff baskets. everyday items become more chic when they're put in a basket I'm looking around no uh, you the, won't the, see oh, one no 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 there's a log basket next to your fire I've got a basket in my office, which I use
1: as a waste paper basket. (laughs) I'm making my rubbish more stylish with every toss of crumpled paper that goes in there. This is not a house of basket, but I'm not saying they're not stylish. Well, she says you can even put books in a basket. What? (laughs) No, you can't. I knew that Books go on a shelf... (laughs) Or on a table, even a pile on the floor to double up as a table. I've done that. We're not putting books in a
0: basket. Well, Jack and Valentina go so far to say that when people visit their home, they they don't even realise they have children because there are no toys on views because all the toys are in the baskets. Ooh, I tell you who would have issues
1: with that is our friend of this podcast and Interior Design Masters presenter, Michelle Agunderhin. She feels very strongly that, you know, children have to be part of every home. Oh, if yeah. they are part of a home, then don't hide them away. She's quite anti-playroom, I think, because she feels <laughs> that children should be, you know, allowed yeah. to own the space. So, right. So in
0: summary on that, I'm not anti-basket. I'm anti-books in a basket. Anti-books and potentially Andy Toys in and Baskets. Well, I'd say that's a very sensible retort. Oh, I am. So we call that Come a draw. We we'll call that okay. a draw. <gasps> okay, next one. Blankets. Are you pointing wait, wait. at me? She's, She's pointing wait, wait. at me no, no, with because- a pen. <laughs> Blankets in Baskets. And you get a double win, you get double points if you've got blankets and you put your blankets in the baskets. You've got a blanket. I'm here and you have a you have a blanket neatly folded, resting on the side of your sofa. That's what they're talking about. That's what stylish people have. Oh, stylish oh, okay. blankets. It's, that's there because Fashionably I can't, folded, can't quite be dra- bothered to take it upstairs. And also I think my
1: 20-year-old son uses it when he's down here at late night watching TV when the heating's gone off.
0: <laughs> <laughs> so maybe that makes him insanely stylish. <laughs> okay, next one. Pretty doormats. Now, this, apparently, according to Jack and Valentina, is extremely important because it's all about first impressions. And one's doormat must be, and I quote, super stylish and super cute. And Jack goes so far to say that he loves doormats so much, he wished he had more front doors. Of course
1: the first thing you see when you come into someone's house mm. is the hallway. The hallway is a very
0: underrated space yes. when it comes okay, to decor. So we're, so we're on board with that. We're, the we're not. We're no? no, because we're not
1: coming in looking at our feet, are we? No, but That's we're not real. the first thing we look at. We're looking straight ahead to the
0: pictures well, to you're the decor. Clearly not wiping your feet before you. Visit is this where you homes? have a doormat with
1: typography in as well, yeah, I which says "Come I, the F in" or, or "F the well, or
0: out"? Well, um, Jack and Valentina quite like a monogrammed doormat with their initials on. What, just in case they forget who they are. <laughs> You're being mean now. So I'm going to move you on to where I already know where this is going. Oh, Candles. I <laughs> and hold your breath. Jack and Valentina say it's not just a candle. Obviously, it's a scented candle. And not only is it a scented candle, it is a lit candle. They say stylish people always have a candle going. Always have it lit. This adds warmth and fragrance. And they understand that stylish people know that a home also has to feel stylish. So there we go. Jack actually buys candles non-stop, and he has candle drawers to put all his collection of candles in. I feel I need a word with Jack. (laughs) I well, I've had a bit
1: of a conversion on the candle.
0: I I have come
1: round to the idea of a scented candle in a limited capacity, right? But I'm not sure we have them burning all the time, do we? I like. In summer, having the door open hmm. and smelling, I was in the garden hanging my washing out the other day. It's a very picture
0: of domestication, it is around here, you know. And all I could smell was the lilac from next door's garden. Oh, I was going to I thought you were going to say, and the lovely waft of persil coming in through the double doors. <laughs> no, it was actually real life flowers. So I don't know. I'm in candles. I
1: don't know. You want to light them all I the time. I think you
0: might like this, though. I thought this was interesting. They said people need a signature scent. Now, Valentina doesn't like the way that Jack likes a different scent in every room. She doesn't think that creates good flow and she thinks you should just have one scent, your signature shirt scent and then the people you invite into your home will know you for your scent.
1: Well, that's quite interesting because I've worn the same perfume for 20 years mm. which is a Mademoiselle by Chanel. So I would always feel that there is if you like a scent of me but I suppose I've never taken it through into the house well, there but you are. I think you see. Do I have issues with this? I have thoughts. Yes, I of have course thoughts. You do. Yeah, <laughs> because I think houses have their own signature sense. Because of the people who live in them. And that's That's just something they're bringing to it. Well, are you trying to override it with your musky rose or whatever that you're lighting in every different room? Or it's all about the kind of essence of the people who live here. So Mm. I've said before, and we've spoken about candles, you know, for me, the smell of my grandmother is lavender and mothballs. That's a smell I love. Now, I don't suppose she set out to have her house smelling about mothballs, but, you know, it was quite a mothy house. So that's what happened that's a kind of comforting smell that's not a contrived one so and also people like different candles depending on the mood they're in so I'm not oh, I'm with Jack you will oh Oh, she's with Jack. Jack. I think if
0: you want a different candle for different rooms or your different mood, I think that's all right. I think Valentina's got too many rules. All I'm going to say is some of these scented candles are like 25 quid a pop, so to have them lit all day every day I think might be a budgetary issue. Anyway, moving on. Yes. What do you think of this one? Every stylish person's home has coffee table books. It shows who they really are, and Jack thinks this is a very thoughtful thing to do. It gives your guests something to Look at when they come and visit. As we sit here in my library, <laughs> surrounded by books. I was going to say we'd never get into conversation. I clearly I do not
1: have an issue with books. What I have an issue with, and this is going to come back to the color coordination of the books, and possibly even there are books with their reverse sides outwards. Mm-hmm. Halston. I have an issue, I think, with books being used as a tool like that. A styling tool. A styling tool. Yes. I think books tell stories. They're part of the personality. They're part of the scent of a house, the essence of a mm. house. And so, I mean, obviously I've got loads of coffee table books. I've got table loads books of books
0: everywhere piled up on all the surfaces. Yeah, I've on the, got coffee table books stall. piled up as well, tables. Well, you've even They're got, foot it, you've even got a, so many books that it's actually making a side table with a lamp on it. Yes, exactly.
1: So I'm not sure I would use books as a styling tool Just even
0: though you do quite All right, <laughs> <laughs> anyway, moving on. You're gonna love this one. This is my favorite. And I'm I think this is a bit of an uh, this now. could be quite an American British cultural thing, but let's see how it lands. Seasonal door wreaths. shot intake of breath so this goes along apparently with the doormat idea and it's all oh as valentina says i love this she goes it's the welcome home package it completes the welcome home package your doormat and your door wreath and they go as far to say that wreaths aren't just for christmas And wreaths are actually to celebrate the season. So Valentina says you have to do something extra gorgeous. Oh, I'd like to know where Valentina uh, lives. There's no there's no door wreath on the uh, the other house greeting me, and I didn't even actually. You're right. I didn't notice the doormat when I turned up. So there's one point to you, but there certainly wasn't a uh, a seasonal wreath. I've never put a wreath on my door, and
1: I feel like it's a bit of an instagram thing it's,
0: it's just, got more it's got more popular i think it is wafting over across the atlantic maybe and coming into here. our into our because instagram there reads. is
1: now isn't there you see people doing halloween wreaths and christmas wreaths mm. and
0: no christmas wreaths is always it, been well a that's thing. a
1: classic but the halloween wreath is new um, I did not know there was a Halloween wreath. I've seen more of those. I wonder if there's now going to be seasonal wreaths. Not in this house, there won't be. There won't be, will there? I'm, I'm not that- sure I mind it if that's what you want to do, if you've got time to do all that and <laughs> knock yourself out. I, you know, I'm not sure I've got time or feel the need to proclaim to anybody driving down the street that the stylish person lives here. <laughs> you know, I mean, I, frankly, I live in London in quite an urban scenario. I would rather my the front of my house looked a bit like Shameless with a a down fridge in the front of it might deter the burglars.
0: <laughs> okay, well, I'm not going to be jumping on the seasonal dory thing either because I live in the middle of nowhere. Nobody drives no, past your front door. Nobody drives past my front door. Right. Okay. On to the next thing. Appropriate stemware, and stemware is glasses. So why can't they just? You see, this, I'm already crossed. No, I know. I'm already crossed. This is not going well. But listen, hold that thought while I justify. Jack, this is Jack's idea. So this has come from Jack, this idea. And it all was triggered because they have some good friends who are diplomats. And when they go over there and they get offered drinks, all the drinks, depending on what the drink is, comes in a different type of glass. Well. <laughs> Harking back to the last episode. I was just going to say, I it? have two thoughts on
1: this. Right. And one is we go back to the last episode, which is about the tablescaping, as you called it, and table laying, occasion, as I called it, and... the occasion and all that. And I, you know, I get that can be quite fun. I also recall having been to places where I felt quite stressed by the amount of glasses and cutlery and crockery on show. And I, feel that that can be quite unwelcoming and I think it's not necessarily stylish. Intimidating. Intimidating and it can be almost a bit snobbish to say you know look at us we put it in these fantastic glasses and you know it's like I once went to a dinner party where there was a different glass for every different wine and I'm sure that's the way you're properly supposed to do it but it felt kind of scary and over the top and actually as a reaction when we had them back here for dinner we served them red wine out of... um, Little tumblers, tumblers. That's very (laughs) French, (laughs) isn't it? It's a slightly passive-aggressive act, but I find that
0: more relaxing. Um, And I could argue, just as stylish, just as stylish. Yes. Okay. More comfortable. Okay. So, do you know? So here's my thing. Right.
1: I think things that stylish people have in their homes is being able to offer a sense of welcome and comfort. That's what every stylish house should have, and it doesn't matter what it looks
0: like. So your nan's house is ultimately one of the stylish, yeah, most stylish the places mottles. to be. Yeah. <laughs>
1: And the crochet tea cosy. <laughs> yeah. This is the last in the current series, but do not fear. We will be back in two weeks with loads more tips, tricks, advice and, well, arguing. <laughs> and in the meantime, if you could leave us a review on the
0: podcast app, that would be fabulous. And for more details and everything we've covered in this episode, do check out the blogs. Mine is uk, and hers is madaboutthehouse.com. But for now, enormous thanks to Harlequin, who have been our fabulous sponsors for this series. Giant thanks to our producers, Kate Taylor and Sarah Cudden of Feast Collective, and to Tom Brignall, who mixes each episode so beautifully. And the most vast thanks of all to you for listening. And we'll see you in the great indoors. (laughs) Sorry, I'm breaking off. We laugh.
1: I'm beginning (laughs) to think I preferred it when I wasn't allowed anybody in my house either. (laughs) And it's mayhem. She's also had two glasses of fizzy water, so she's going to start purping. (laughs)